Our first scripture lesson is Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before God, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love. And your faithfulness, you have exalted your name and your word above everything. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and you give in your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture lesson this morning is a short part, a short section from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Last Sunday, we heard an excerpt from the first chapter of Colossians, and this morning our scripture lesson is from the second chapter, and it's only two verses. Listen for the Word of God for us this day in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to walk in Him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask your continued blessing upon us in this time of worship. May the hearing of your word be a guide for us, and may we be transformed in this time. Amen. In this book of Colossians, Paul is writing a letter. He's writing a letter to these earliest of Christians, and he's writing this letter from prison. In this short letter, Paul writes to encourage these new Christians, new believers who are paving a way for the faith that will become for us Christianity. But for them, for them, it was a new way of living, a new way of living, but also a new way of believing, a new way of seeing the world. But it was also a new way that would lead for them to a sort of voluntary oppression, an oppression. They knew that as a follower of Jesus, just like Paul, who found himself in prison, it could be a death sentence for them, for these believers, especially at this time, and it would continue for the first 300 years of Christianity. Early in the first century, at the time that this is all happening, there were new laws being enacted that were designed to stop the spread of Christianity. New conversions were feared so much by the government that they punished converts to death. But they also tried to crush the souls of those who would be potential converts. Now, in the second century, the approach changed a little bit under the new Roman authority. 
Those who were practicing the faith were allowed to do so, but it became specifically illegal to convert to Christianity, and there were huge financial penalties imposed on those who converted. The Roman leaders believed that if converts were stopped, the new religion would eventually be suffocated and die out. They were taking the long game a little bit, right? These, these rules were enforced with great zeal by the government. But very quickly it became clear that the government understood nothing about Christianity. For these earliest followers of Christ, the message of the Great Commission go out into the world and make disciples of all people. This was a message. The Great Commission was a message they couldn't ignore. It was so central to who they were and what their understanding of being a follower of the way was. You know, among the last words of Christ, among the last words of Christ was this challenge and charge to all believers to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Many of these early Christians would die a terrible death because of their faith, but also because of their refusal to stay silent about their faith. And so when we read Paul's letters, especially when, when we remind ourselves that Paul too would be killed in this way, and while all the other believers were being killed, when we read the letters in this context, the meaning takes on grave importance. The, the power of the words means more when we understand that declaring Christ as being above all rulers and leaders, it's a direct shot across the bow of those political leaders who were already the enemies of Paul and those early Christians. By, by choosing to follow Christ, these new Christians are choosing to risk their lives, to give up everything. And even in the midst of this, perhaps even especially in the midst of this, Paul's encouragement to these believers, Paul writes these words, the words I'm going to read them again from our text this morning. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. For these earliest Christians, their identity as followers of Jesus was inseparable. It was indistinguishable from any other part of their identity. Following God meant acknowledging that it was God who had dominion over them or reign over them, that, that God was their, their supreme leader, their, their everything. And this is what we acknowledge in worship. This is why we worship. We don't, call, we don't call this a time of being together, although we are together, right? This is a time of, of worship. It's, it's why we worship. We worship God. We don't simply gather to feel good or enjoy ourselves or to be entertained. We gather to worship. And in worship, we acknowledge God's intermingling with and God's claim of ownership over our lives, God's presence in our whole lives, in everything we do and in everything we love, everything we're afraid of, everything we run from, everything we value, everything. And what a wonder it is that 
God invites us into this place, into this space of worship, with everything we bring, all of who we are, and that this God invites us to worship at the foot of the cross and to acknowledge and recognize God's presence in our lives. And in some ways, we come to this place to worship because it's a little easier here. It's, it's, it's easy for us to acknowledge the importance of it when we are accompanied by music and by teaching and by this wonderful space and by others. It's, it's a little easier to get a glimpse so that when we leave this place, well, when we first acknowledge in this place our full presence for God, it's easier when we leave this place. And that goal should be that we would continue out the door with no partition in our lives, nothing separating our church self from our work self or our home self or our family self, our golf course self, and even our driving in traffic interacting with people who don't use their turn signal self. There's no differentiation. This is, this is what it means when we fully surrender to God, and God gets all of who we are. God gets all of who we are, and thank goodness God gets who, all of who we are, because then all of who we are, all of our parts, get God. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he uses this imagery, you've heard it now a couple times from me, imagery of being rooted and built up in Christ. This is one of the first things he writes after spending most of the first chapter of the letter declaring what I've just done with us, declaring Christ's importance to their faith and to their salvation. He's encouraging the people, but first, before that encouragement, he's declaring to the people. He's declaring to the people in powerful language that in Christ, this is what he writes, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven." by making peace through the blood of his cross. That's the one we worship. Paul is, is writing for us about Jesus and saying, this is the one we worship. This is the one we follow. The one who has made you holy and blameless before God, Paul writes. And, and then, that's when he says this. He says, and as you as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him. You see, Paul's challenge here to these Colossians is to accept the gift that God has given already in Jesus Christ. 
accept it. It's established in the faith. It was there before creation. And the message of Christ and Christ's importance to the faith is a story that has already been written. Paul's focus then becomes less on whether we believe and understand all of the details and more about living our lives in Christ, rooted and built up in Christ. Rooted and built up. Since moving here, I've been learning a lot about the landscape, and the one thing I can't ignore are the saguaro cactus. And I learned that when a saguaro cactus, by the time it's four feet tall, it has been growing its roots for as many as 55 years. This is amazing to me. The roots stretch out four feet from the main stem in all the directions, but as I'm sure most of you know, they only grow about four inches deep. I also learned this. In one rainstorm, the roots are able to collect up to 200 gallons of water. 200 gallons of water. These roots, hidden from the eye, they do so much. And I know you probably, again, are aware of all these things, but I'm still learning a lot. I, I learned that a mature swallow can weigh up to eight tons. Eight tons. With those roots that are four to six inches. And this impressive water-gathering root system, it removes water from the soil. And this makes sense because especially during those drenching monsoon storms, that water would saturate the soil, and in the wind, that several-ton swaro would come crashing down. But no, the roots are there. The roots are there. Rooted and built up. And Paul doesn't say, you root yourself in Christ. Go root yourself in Christ. Or plant yourselves in Christ. No, Paul says, Paul says, walk on. Walk on. Proceed in your life rooted and built up in Christ. You see, there's some encouragement here that it is to know but we don't have to be the ones who do the work of our redemption. We don't have to be the ones who have it perfect, who get it all right, and who live without sin. Friends, you are already rooted by your God. You are rooted and built up in Christ, and the wonder of your life is that you are then encouraged to continue to walk on in that confidence, to continue the journey, recognizing the soil in which you have been rooted. You're rooted already in the soil that is Jesus Christ, and your foundation in Christ is the most solid foundation upon which you can be built. You see the action verb, the question, the call is to walk on to walk with Christ, rooted and built up in Him. Walk with Christ. Walk in a way that strives to acknowledge Christ and Christ's presence in all aspects of your life so that you reach the point where you feel that, you feel that rootedness in every fiber of your identity. This is precisely our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. 
It's our calling as a church. The church, in the same way, must be rooted and built up in Christ and must live in a way that reflects Christ. When we consider the identity of the church, why we exist, why do we exist? We must also look to what it means to be rooted and built up in Christ. This is what we do in our service and partnerships in the community, like those who prepare and serve meals at Andre House or, or help at you, Mom, and support the ministries in Haiti and in Bethlehem and in all the ways we walk alongside ministries, supporting those in need. We reflect Christ by being a light in our neighborhood and loving all who come in contact with our church. We reflect Christ by welcoming families who entrust their children to our wonderful preschool. We reflect Christ when we host support groups and other programs here at the church. We reflect Christ. And then walking with Christ, living with Christ, being rooted and built up with Christ, established in faith, Paul writes that we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. This phrase catches me every time because Paul's in prison. He's in prison. And he's telling others, do like I'm doing and abound in thanksgiving. What does he have to be thankful for in that moment, right? See, we think of thanks, we think of giving thanks as being a sort of transactional piece, right? We receive something of value, whether it's actual value, emotional value, whatever it might be, and we want to show in some way the value of what we have received. So we offer thanks. We send a thank you note. We reciprocate, perhaps. And this is giving of thanks, and this is a good thing. It's right that we do this. It's kind. It's civil. But let's return to these early martyrs and to the Christians hearing these words of Paul in the first century. The thanksgiving to which they are being called is something quite different. They're being called to abound in thanksgiving before God even when they suffer. And not despite their suffering, but in their suffering. Paul's closing words to the Colossians, his closing words are, remember my chains. Remember my chains. And this is the same one who's saying, abound in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. So what did this mean to them? What did this mean to, their, to his audience? Remember that these first believers in Colossae, they were Jews. They had studied the biblical texts. They knew the rules and practices of their faith, and they knew the history that was contained in them. And the retelling of history, the retelling of history of the church and of Israel was integral to their upbringing. Indeed, for those early Christians, the understanding of thanksgiving was rooted in every waking hour of the day. From the prayers of the morning to the prayers at night, the Jewish tradition of gratitude to God is a little different. It was gratitude to God because of who God is. 
thanking God for being God. Psalm 138, which Kelly read for us earlier, is just one example of so many psalms of thanksgiving. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart, the psalmist writes. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The wonder and beauty of our relationship with God is that thanksgiving stops being a transaction. A transaction where we are thankful for God solely because of what God has done. Or thanksgiving in hopes for what God might do for us. Rather, our thanksgiving, our giving of thanks to God is first and foremost because of who God is. Because of who God is. It's a declaration that God's love is greater and stronger than anything of this world. Any storm that could come that would get in the way of our experience of that love. This thanksgiving to which we are called, it's a strange thing. It's a strange and mysterious thanksgiving. Thank God that we are not called to be martyrs and that our sacrifice for Christ will likely never mean hiding from authorities or going against the government. There are Christians throughout the world today for whom that is still a reality, but for most of us, that will never be our reality. And early in Christianity, there was a shift because in the fourth century, when Christianity was made legal and became even the state religion, that prolific martyrdom came to an end. And it meant that Christians had to rethink what it meant to believe and to follow. In some ways, it was easier to commit oneself to being a martyr than it was to try to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian in a free environment. Right about that time, St. John Chrysostom wrote a great deal about giving thanks in the midst of suffering. This is what he wrote. But also, whenever we are either in poverty or in sickness or are being insulted, then let us intensify our thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, I mean, not in words nor with the tongue, but in deeds and works, in mind and in heart. Let us give thanks to God with all our souls. Friends, may we in this congregation be ones who give thanks to God with all our souls. May we be ones who give thanks to God as we welcome others into our midst. May we be ones who give thanks to God in the ways we walk with those who are suffering, those who are mourning, those who struggle with depression and anger and addiction. May we be ones who give thanks to our God in our worship, in our song, in our laughter, in our relationships with one another. May we be ones rooted and built up in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving, ones who seek to know and love God more, ones who seek together to walk with Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.